Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Here we are. Oh, this now is getting very official. Um, sit there. I go here. Yeah. And so it's You're easy. In You're in the red chair. Yeah, have a seat. Oh, my headphones. Yeah. Yeah, you've got headphones. Okay. Do I put my cans onto it? Yes, of course. Okay. I've always lived with and loved only connect. E.M. Foster's epigraph in his novel Howard's End, expressing the moral importance of connections between people. And this is one of the reasons I'm so happy to have Trudy Styler, producer, actress, activist, farmer, here today, for she and I are connected. Trudy and I are both passionate about the landscape, wine, Trudy has her own vineyard, food, and history of southern Tuscany, where every summer we fill our houses with our children, our children's friends, and our friends' children, occupying every bed and making space for yet another chair around the big table. So here we are. Trudy has stories to tell, a recipe for grouse she's chosen, and knowledge about all that she produces. Trudy is a woman I admire, a woman I adore. What a connection. Hello, Ruthie. Hello, Judy. <laughs> I'm crying. Okay. It's been a long time since I've seen you. I know. You chose, of all the recipes in all our books, the grouse. Yes, I'm very excited about roast grouse from the River Cafe. Uh, one grouse plucked and cleaned and 250 mils of Aliatico di Puglia. So preheat the oven to 230 C, place the grouse in a roasting tin and roast for 20 to 30 minutes. Depending on the size and how rare you like your grouse, we serve them slightly pink. The easiest way to test for doneness is to pull the leg away from the body at the thigh. Remove from the oven and leave the bird to rest for two to three minutes. Remove and untie the string. Heat the roasting tin over a medium high heat Add the remaining wine and reduce by half. Return the bird to the tin and turn to coat it in the juices, then serve. This is delicious served with braised cavoloniero. Can I introduce Sean Winowen, who is the head executive, brilliant chef at the River Cafe. And she knows more about grouse than probably either of us, or even a grouse, don't you, Sean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and everything else. So we can talk with Sean as well. What do you think about grouse? Do you, is it your, of the game birds, is it your favorite, Sean? I think it's um, when you get them in August, September, before they've become high and, and really aged, the, you can, they're very perfumed and the, you can really taste, you know, what the grouse feed on for example you know like heathers and little berries and you can almost imagine the 
the hills that they've they've eaten off and, and you can really taste that in the flesh yeah well I, I can't <laughs> wait because this really is the bird that I have never I, and I mm. don't ask me why I've never tasted grouse but I haven't so well, when rare. I saw yeah. when I saw it on the menu it was yeah. like this That's is so for nice. me today yeah yeah Brave, yeah, yeah, it's good. And when you cook it, what do you think? If you were, if if Trudy wanted to go home and cook a grass, would you say to be brave as well? Would you say? I think, I think in English restaurants or like people cook the game very pink, but I think in the way we cook at the River Cafe, if you think of um, dishes like a rosto misto in Italy, where things might go on an open fire and cook for for longer, you can cook the meat slightly more. We also put bruschetta, and really for just you know, for the juices. Today we're doing it with um, a massive, big tomato like a Sorrento tomato, and a bit of brunello actually, and cook all that with the grouse. Ooh. And it, it, the tomato works with the grouse at this time of year because the grouse isn't too strong. Why does it get more pungent uh, as it goes on this in the year? So I think if it's hung, oh. so once it's being um, shot, they'll hang them for. a for a while and they seem to get more punchy and I'm sure that's why they would have served them in gentlemen's clubs followed by cigars because (laughs) (laughs) Richard my husband used to come in and always embarrassingly to me always say I'd like a grouse to the waiter and I'd like it really well hung a well hung grouse which could have another connotation (laughs) that Richard wants his grouse well hung I was like okay but he liked it he liked it when a friend of mine once told me that Peter Rice told me that he was sent a grouse and it was over the holiday and so it just sat in the post office of some Irish small town and then he went home and cooked it and it was just he, he said it was the best grouse he'd ever had but just been probably about to you know disintegrate it was so old so this um recipe for grouse seems to not be something that you might have eaten in your childhood because no. <laughs> I know that you had a very very um, different kind of childhood probably from your children's and so maybe we should go back to the very early days. What was it like growing up in your family food yeah. wise? Well I, I was born in the Midlands, in the West Midlands mm. in a little uh, village called Stoke Briar near to a town called Bromsgrove near mm. to the county of Worcestershire and so we were brought up on a council house estate in Worcestershire where sort of being post-war, I was born in um, the, in the mid-50s, there was still this feeling of uh, people had to conserve and preserve. Mm-hmm. My mum could go to the butchers just once a week for the roast, mm-hmm. on sun- the Sunday roast. And then the Sunday roast was made to stretch, you know, mm-hmm. throughout the week and she was very inventive with how she could stretch it and in fact I became a lover of offal which I preferred over the Sunday roast just because it was just very flavorful and so we would have liver uh, liver and onions and um, kidneys that she'd saute with some mushrooms and then um, we would have uh, do, do you know what faggots are or savory ducks because my mother was from the north I always get so, confused about faggots what are faggots so faggots were... Um, like a so, sausage? So no, it was using up the, um, the rest of the, the joint that hadn't been used on right. a Sunday. So right. you could use cooked meats or if you hadn't got enough to stretch for three kids in our case and mum and dad, um, then she'd buy some sausages. And then raw onion, lots of raw onions were used. And I got the job of being her apprentice to... Um, mince everything up and then she would buy a pig's bladder oh, yeah. and then the cooked 
meats and, and raw sausage meat with the onions, salt and pepper, wrapped up in the bladder, uh, the pig's bladder, and into the oven it went. And was utterly Amazing. delicious. But also, <laughs> the way you describe her, to take that effort... You know, to do that, she could have easily made kind of cold beef sandwiches or done lots of other things with the leftover joint. But that that she actually did that work was you know, to get the pig's bladder and to make the faggots. It shows a. But a, I think a it was really a, you know, at the time living in rural England, you had a butcher who had every part yeah. of the animal, and nothing was ever wasted because, you know, now we have um, you know so-called superfoods I live in New York and so oh let's have bone broth you yeah. know bone broth is that you yeah. know but we were having bone broth yeah. because my mum made stock from big animals bones and she oh. would make soups from her stock yeah. and that was very typical of the time I think did you sit down for dinner as a family yeah. every night yeah did she did. work during the day yes yeah. she, she worked as she, school she was the school dinners lady have you had faggots yes yeah did you ever make them no, but my mum the same um, had that kind of post-war kind of yeah, fare, exactly. do you think, with yeah. faggots? And I vaguely remember having gravy on. Did she also cook one big roast and then do that with a... Uh, my mum did, yeah. yeah. And then in, in Welsh, actually, the day, Thursday, actually translates into liver day, and that was a day you just have liver. Oh, <laughs> <really>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love <laughs> liver, but I like very pale... Veal liver, you know, that's actually really, really subtle. But um, bring on the blood, I, I say. Sheep's, sheep's liver, I think, would be well, normal for yeah. us to have. Yeah. Lamb's, lamb's, lamb's liver, sorry. We yeah. had, yes, lamb's liver was the sort of the posh <laughs> one. Yeah. Oh, was yeah. it? Yes, and pig's, pig's. liver. Pig's liver was the cheapest one. Oh. Lamb's liver. That's was actually a bit very posh. tasty, though. Pig's liver. Yeah, very. Yeah. Yes, and bigger. <laughs> yeah. But also, I have to say that before, you know, it's just just that if you look at Italian food, you know the food of Tuscany, and in the winter particularly, you'll make a minestrone on a, you know, one day, and then you'll make ribolita, and then, you know, you'll have tomatoes, and then you'll make, you know, using the bread as a way of extending the, the food. Again, no waste, you know, everything yeah. is always used. Was it only your mother who cooked, or did your father No, we cook? all, I mean, we were um, three girls in, in my family, and uh, Dad worked in a lampshade factory, and he was also a school caretaker. And I was uh, also co-opted to help him, which was always much more fun than helping Mum, sort of like, because I got the washing up jobs. But with Dad, I got to change into my like overalls and sweep the playground with him and in the summer we were given um, permission from the headmistress to go into the orchard which was part of our playing ground fields and it was full of um, plums and apples and we would put the ladders up against the trees and we would take home literally boxes of apples and as we both rode bikes we'd have to sort of do copious journeys to get the apples back so we'd wrap up the apples in newspaper or brown paper. It was usually newspaper because we had the Daily Express every day, so we had piles <laughs> of Daily Express papers, and they would all go under my bed. So under my bed, I would have throughout the winter, my little pals, these wow. piles of, of apples. They smell? And, Does and smell it, yes, like an yes, apple? They, yes, they did smell like an apple. Mm. Um, and then um, we would sort of then start to use them through the winter bit by bit. But still by March, they were going strong. How, how, why wouldn't they go off 
Was it the well, newspaper? Because it's, having them in a dark place, they yeah. didn't go off, but they did get a bit wrinkled. Mm. But it didn't stop so mum from being able to mom. make, yeah. you know, baked apples. And she made so many apples. She made toffee apples for Walls Road. Yes. When, yeah, in November, November the 5th, fire, bonfire night, yeah. um, she made all the kids in our street toffee apples from the... The purloined, wow. with permission, <laughs> apples yeah. that were under my yeah. bed. That's nice. That's nice. We used to get sent out blackberry picking with a big Tupperware thing, and my mum would be like, "You can't come home till it's full." And then she'd mm. make obviously chutney, jam, and then apple crumble, apple pie. Yeah, because you've got your in your basket. You've got the. Um, the suet, haven't you? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 Ru- Ruthie, so yes, I don't know. Have, have you come across a Torah suet in your... Uh, um, no. <laughs> uh, I grew up in upstate New York, you have to remember, Woodstock. <laughs> Trudy arrived in the River Cafe with a basket, a beautiful basket, and I would like you to tell Sean and I what's in this basket. Yes. So, Ruthie, this... It's called the original Atora shredded beef suet for fluffy dumplings, pastries, puddings, and pies. I'm going to throw up. Yeah, but that's what <laughs> that is a classic. <laughs> I love it. So this this is by a, appointment it's, it's to a, it's His a, Majesty. Okay, and actually, I really like the packaging. If I'm allowed to say that, because it do, it does look of its time, didn't it? So, Beautiful. So it? fluffy dumplings were one of the first things that my mum taught me to make and they couldn't be simpler to make because there's three ingredients. It's a Tora beef suet, which is lard really, it's sort of like yeah. made from a, a cow. They've shredded it for you. And to, it doesn't have to be refrigerated, you just this is No, just I just keep in it the in the packet. in the yeah. pantry. And so you have uh, say eight ounces of a Tora suet, eight ounces of self raising flour, pinch of salt, water, combine the lot, and then as your chicken casserole or chicken stew is bubbling away nicely you put them in at the last 20 minutes and so the gravies go into the dumplings but the dumplings are rising because of the self-raising flour they actually sort of like provided much needed carbs for kids in the Mm. growing up late 50s 60s so if you couldn't afford you know potatoes at the time this was a very sort of cheap fare. But do you make them? Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. do you put them in? Do you put them in soup? In stews and soups yeah. and yes, it's a uh, and of course living I live in New York too now. Yeah. So I have uh, chicken soup and matzo balls. Matzo balls. I know. I mean, I was going to say that I'm sure every culture has their dumpling. Chinese food has yeah. dumplings and and Jewish food that I grew up with, my grandmother always made matzo balls. So matzo is that cracker and and there would be chicken soup. And matzo balls. These are probably better. Have you cooked with suet? I mean, that is really familiar to me as well. The, my my mum and my grandma used to make dumplings. It was okay. such the tr- most delicious thing. Yeah, they're really yummy. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, but it does sort of slightly explain. There's, it's just pure saturated fat, isn't it? Yeah. Like nowadays, we they probably have a health warning on them. Like too many dumplings. Yeah, so I do think we need. I do think we need thousand. There was 816 calories in 100 grams of this. So, yeah. They're so yummy. Yeah. But then you could use that to make um, pudding as well, can't you? So you can make the suet suet puddings. Yeah, yeah. suet puddings, they're good. And so growing up, food was, it was clearly important. There was a value to sitting down and having a meal. Yeah, I don't think my mum had it in her to um, 
open cans mm. of things and mm. make pies. Mm. I mean, Sting talks about his mum making Frey Bentos pies mm. from cans of uh, beef cubes mm. and then making a pastry case, you know, and, and that's pretty inventive. But my mother was just, a, what she'd say it was a scratch cook. She mm. would begin with the stock and yeah. she'd begin with at the at the beginning and then and the end of it was that we would sit down even in a council house with an embroidered tablecloth that she'd embroidered and sit together nice. it was important to yeah. her nice did you ever go to a restaurant no you'd never been in a restaurant no yeah. we went to uh, went to a restaurant once um with my nana the works cook grandmother and uh she brought us to sort of it was like a lion's tea house mm-hmm. in cheshire and that was the first my first memory of being in a restaurant how and old were you six seven something like that and i saw um somebody eating what looked like a plate of worms to me uh and it was they were these long long strands and it was <laughs> red and i could not believe my eyes it's like are they eating worms with all that red sauce is that the worm's blood (laughs) and i think back to that image (laughs) was spaghetti yes it was spaghetti (laughs) (laughs) and declaring i'll never eat that in my life only to now sort of like spaghetti uh olio pepperoncino is actually my favorite thing and it's served every day in a house in italy because i Mm. just yeah. love it so much i could yeah. i could eat it all day long nice um you said that um you had an, an accident you had to get through which has sounded very scary and very um disabling and that yeah. affected you i was only two and a half so um i'd toddled out of the house my oh. mum was bathing my younger sister and uh i uh, went down the stairs, and the little girl from over the street had called me uh, to see if I could if I could come over to her place, and uh, did I want to have a sweetie? So I said, "Oh yes," uh, and she she was only about five herself, I think, and she took me over to their house. She got me a sweet, and I think her mother thought that I was going to be escorted back to our house, and I wasn't. So I was crossing the road, and. Uh, a 15-year-old kid had um, jumped into the uh, a baker's van. The baker was delivering his bread, and the the kid had jumped into this lovely big uh, van mm. and uh, knocked it from neutral into first and took the handbrake off. And the truck started to the van started to roll. Uh, down the hill the same time that I was on the ground and luckily the wheels missed me uh, otherwise I wouldn't be telling the story now Uh, but the exhaust pipe caught me at the back of my head and dragged me along the street so sort of like really uh, taking off quite a lot of the left hand side of my face Uh, do you have a memory of it no don't have a memory of it. What I do have a, a memory of, it's because it must be sort of deep in my cellular system of being fearful of the road. Yeah. So, uh, yes, being, I think growing up, uh, you know, kids can be a bit 
bit cruel to children mm. who look a bit different, and mm. um, and I did look a bit different as a, as a youngster. Uh, you know, I had very livid marks on my face. But mom got a job as the school uh, dinners lady, and she sort of like she was a very formidable looking okay. woman. My mom, she was yeah. about fifteen and a half stones, and mm. she's like nobody was going to mess with Pauline yeah. Styler. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. she Good. protected me from a lot of yeah. you know unfair remarks that were being made. Did you know the River Cafe has a shop? It's full of our favorite foods and designs. We have cookbooks, linen napkins, kitchenware, tote bags with our signatures, glasses from Venice, chocolates from Turin. You can find us right next door to the River Cafe in London or online at shoptherivercafe.co.uk. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. So you grew up in a house that valued food, picking apples and with your father. It seems like a very close you know, childhood with with a very severe trauma. What was it like when you left home? You know, when you decided to be an actor, right? Yeah, I decided to be an actor. Well, things uh, weren't so good when I decided to be an actor with my dad and me because he was very fearful of, you know, what is that? Nobody in Walls Road has become uh, an actor, and and it was a just a an upsetting time because I was a headstrong seventeen year old who you know had been had been to a grammar school and had a great education and mm. loved literature and loved everything to do with the performing arts and I think as a way to sort of like express myself too that I felt that all those years of you know, not knowing who I was was expressed through character mm. um, and so it was very. It's a big passion to become a to become somebody in the performing arts, 
What was his ambition for you? Do you know? Did he want you to go to university? No, he wanted me to have a safe job Mm. that guaranteed a paycheck. And the Harris Brushworks was the paintbrush factory that was the closest to us. So he wanted me to get a job in the typing pool and make use of my grammar school Mm. education Mm. by an office job. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I'm... Suddenly my life changed profoundly. Being an actor, a student actor, going to Bristol, learning the arts, getting a job, sort of like going off to Manchester, so exploring areas in in England. And then eventually the Royal Shakespeare Company um, in London. I had a season at the warehouse when it was the Donmar was the RSC's other home other than the... At the old witch, and then they moved to the Barbican and put all the plays into the Barbican. Um, so, you know, op- the horizons just being mm. opened and opened and opened with these, ex- these life experiences, and then, you know, sort of then, if we're talking food and wine, sort of trying new, uh, new things. Traveling to Morocco was a big uh, change of scenery for me when. When I was 18, hitchhiking through the country with my boyfriend and staying there for three months, it was sort of like an amazing experience of it's the first time I'd had Middle Eastern food. Mm. So, you know, all these sights and sounds and smells are evocative, aren't they, to the, mm. the, the country's palate and what they are like so you begin to be inclusive in your own diet of so many different flavors and tastes that you acquire with the years that go by mm-hmm. i think it's exposure isn't it and yeah. i always think that one of the defining things for our families are, you know my, i know that my my grandparents were immigrants from russia and hungary so their their vision was very small so my father and mother were a product of that and grew and grew. But when I think about what my children are exposed to in terms of travel, experiences, food, yeah. restaurants, the exposure factor is so so much greater than, than what I had. But did your father hold it against you? Did, did you see him? Was he a friend or did he... We, was he so we took upset? a while to, uh, to become close. But when uh, Sting and I bought Lake House... It's a farm that we've had in Wiltshire for 32 years now. We'd had uh, two kids. Um, he came and um, visited, and and then I found my dad again because, you know, he was a man of the country. I loved the country, and and we would go through the grounds, and I'd say, Harry, what shall we? Well, after we fell out, I never called him dad again. He was Harry to me, and uh, and I'm proud to say I've got a beautiful grandson who's named after him but we we became pals you know and that was important that and I didn't need him as my dad anymore because I'd sort of found my place in life with without my parents but he became a really important component of steering and guiding me with how to create a really good organic farm and uh and made me sort of feel more more courageous about us having this sort of diverse farm and um, it was an organic farm and uh, Soil Association were like fantastically helpful and dad was always coming over and giving me his 
you know, it's 10 cents worth of, oh. you know, um, nice. you know, just plant different varietals and of, of apples and of potatoes. And, uh, you know, he, we'd had like, even in our very modest garden in the Midlands, uh, we, because we were a middle house, we sort of had this double lot. And so we grew a fantastic amount of, um, of, of veggies and, Dad was very proficient with that and didn't use any fertilizers or anything. You know, was we were always rapturous when we mm. saw so many worms in the garden. Mm. Even with Lake House, your first home, that you did an organic garden. Was that a family decision or was something that you had to push No, I for? think it, I think it's to do with my very early childhood of I'm not afraid of the soil. I know that um, if the soil is good, good things will come from good soil. Bad things will come from bad soil. So when, you know, having Lake House, uh, creating an organic farm was sort of easy because it was England, getting to Palagio and getting... Yeah, I was going to ask you how Tuscany and Wiltshire marry. So Palagio, I didn't... uh, I certainly planted a a veggie garden, so many tomatoes, because that was sort of like hugely satisfying that these brilliant tomatoes just grow and thrive in the heat and you can smell the heat in them and the sweetness that comes from them. But um, taking on Pelagio just was a, a whole different animal than taking on lake house but what i did decide after two years of just having vegetable gardens and seeing that we've got rather wonderful olives that um probably just i should learn a bit about um, the vineyard and so with that started to get the hands into the soil there was a vineyard when you bought the house there was a very um broken down vineyard not really tended that well no drainage really what was the wine like the wine was, um, well, it was being sold into the community at mm. that point. But I was having my neck adjusted at a chiropractor. And I said, "That's where is that picture? It was a picture of a marvellous vineyard. And I said, what, what is that vineyard doing on your wall, Stefan? And he said, oh, that's my vineyard. And I said, ah. oh, can I come and see it? And I said, how, how are you doing this? And he said, well, there's... There's a, this guy called Alan York, and he, he does biodynamic wine. And would you like to meet him? I said, absolutely. Cut to Alan York coming to uh, Palagio. And so for the first seven years, uh, we uh, worked together, Alan and I. And I had the great pleasure to um, learn a lot from Alan. And 2002, we planted a lot of... Um, Varietals and uh, so you replaced all the vineyards with your own your own grapes. We 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 kept some and we uh, created more. In two thousand seven, we had our first vintage Mm. for Sister Moon and when we dance and um, and then all that we have to say that the wine named after the songs. Yeah, so a lot of the wines are named after Sting songs. Message in a bottle. Message in a bottle. Christina Delevee, <laughs> Sister Moon, and When We Dance. Yeah. And I bought you today, oh. what, my favorite, which is a white Vermentino, actually. It's called, oh. Bac- it's called Bacci Sulla Bocca. Um, we made this in 2020 when we were full on, you know, pandemic and yeah. 
wearing masks and nobody seemed to be kissing anybody. So I said, let's let's call this kisses on the mouth mouth. and hope for the day to come back. And uh, and so that's that's the Vermentino. This is a Chianti Reserva called When We Dance. Who Uh, does your labels? Me. Do you do do them? Yeah, Yeah, I do them. I love that label. Uh, It's beautiful. Yeah. Why don't you describe oh, yes. it? What is it? Because nobody can see it. So the, the picture of, us, of a lady dressed as Catwoman, and she's in point shoes, ballet point shoes, and she is very nimbly walking across the top of two wine bottles, perfectly balanced, because I think that wines should be balanced and food should be balanced and, and all things in life we aim to be balanced. I always think when we do the olive oil trip to taste the new olive oil and the wine in November, it, you know, we have a romance about wine. We have a romance about olive oil. We see these beautiful bottles of the product. But, you know, in the end or in the beginning, it is agriculture. Yeah. It is a farm. It is about the weather. And when you talk to them about what olive oil we're going to have and what it's going to taste like, they'll talk about a bug that they had, you know, the this trees the that virus, destroyed. Yeah. Or they'll talk about this year, you know, everyone is very, very worried about the fact that the heat of the summer has going to mean that both wine and olive oil production is going to be very endangered for this year. Are you involved to the extent that you are concerned about yeah. whether... Well, we're quite lucky where we are because we, we have a cooler evenings. There wasn't one evening, I don't know about for yeah. you, Ruthie, but um, we... So we we had those insufferable forty one degree days, mm-hmm. but in the evenings, you know, we went cool. it went down to mm-hmm. you know maybe in, in the late seventies, and that is the best news for the vines yeah. because they recover themselves, and uh, it wasn't a morning without the sort of being a sort of feeling of that dewy sort of morning. And uh, can we talk about the olive oil? Is that olive oil that I see in there? Yes. Okay. Nice. Nice bottle. Is it all from your... Yes, absolutely. You don't mix it with other... No. So it's extra virgin. um, uh, Biologico means organic. And the olives are Frantoio, Mariolo, and Lecino. Oh, we know those. So we... um, Do you want to... Why don't you talk about the wine trip and the olive oil trip? Because this is a big deal in the River Cafe that we've done since almost the day Rose and I started. But when we did it the first years, there were like five of us or four of us are actually Rose and myself and now every October we take um, anyone that's worked at the restaurant for any of the chefs who've worked for a year or above a year we take them to Tuscany to do big um, olive oil tastings and wine tastings at the main wineries that we that we kind of buy from but I mean we can always swing by if you're around <laughs> it's, a, it's a very special relationship that we have to meet the people who grow the olive oil who produce the yeah. wine who live it it's, it's all mostly in, in Tuscany although now we've we've uh, extended to Piemonte and Puglia it's now probably about six producers that we go to that are really like family you, you taste the wine you taste the olive oil and and you learn. And what it is for the people who've worked here, who've been cooking, you know, this food, who've been making the bruschettas or frying cavallone, you know, cavallonero or what, whatever they've been working with, they haven't, it's a bed back to our children. It's, it's about exposure. And some of them have never been to Italy or have ever been certainly to Tuscany and have certainly never sat down at a table where the food was cooked in the kitchen and the ingredients were grown in the garden in Tuscany. 
And so it's a, it's a really important trip for us um, that they do this. For, we go for about four days, don't we? And you do it sort of after, presumably, the grapes have been harvested and then during the time of the vendemia of the, uh, yeah. of, of the olives. Yeah. So, they, so, uh, so we're talking November, yeah, end of November. Begin, um, beginning of November, usually, early, early November. And then um, and what I think what it shows the chefs often is the fact that you'll only get maybe two bottles of oil off, off one tree. Yeah. And people just chug oil in until they've been to Tuscany and suddenly they're like, this is it's insane the amount of trees that you need to produce bottles of oil. And, and they suddenly have a, a more respect for you know, the ingredients. They're very inspired when they come yeah. back, don't they? They're so proud of having been, don't you think? It's a yeah. Kind of it's to sit on the bus going up the mountains and down the mountains after drinking a pint of oil. I'm here with Joseph Trevelli. We just were talking to Trudy Styler, and you've just been cooking lunch in the restaurant. And so did you do a grouse today? We did grouse today. What we had them for a few days, so it was quite nice. And tell me about it. So today we cook grouse in red wine. Mm. Which one uh, do you know? We use the Chianti. You know, grouse is a very traditional thing. You have these kind of old-fashioned London restaurants that serve grouse with sweet little sauce and game chips and all this stuff, yeah. which is lovely, but really quite different to what we do, which is we just put it in the wood oven and it gets kind of heat from all over in some wine and this kind of becomes this kind of self-sourcing bird. Very often we put a piece of bread, a bit of bruschetta underneath the grouse and that kind of soaks up the, the flavour and the wine um, and you know, a little olive oil and you've got the most wonderful dish. If you, were, if you were telling somebody at home who doesn't have a wood oven mm. and a, wants to have a grouse, mm. wh- what advice or what tips would you give to the person cooking a grouse at home? Rest it a little bit in the pan that you cook it in. You know, maybe cook it in a pan with some wine. You know, it doesn't have to be wine, actually. It could be anything. Sometimes we might, a little brandy and a little bit of tomatoes is also quite nice. Um, olive oil or butter. Definitely inside the grouse, it's nice to put a little bit of oil or a little bit of butter because that gets hot mm. and then it cooks from the inside out as well. Mm. So I'd say that's a pretty good tip, mm. actually. Um, and then, you know, we bring it to the front of the oven, but I would say, you know, after a little while of roasting, just leave it on the side. If you like listening to Ruthie's Table 4, would you please make sure to rate and review the podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Tell us about what you were doing in Naples. Two and a half years ago, I was asked, would I like to direct a documentary about Naples? I said, well, I I don't know Naples. And they said, exactly. So we would like a sort of like a, a foreign pair of eyes on a city they don't know anything about. And what what do you think of it? And uh, this two and a half year journey has been just revelatory, really, in the humanity that is there, as, as well as you know the art and the extraordinary food that you can be served in Naples. I can honestly say there was not one bad restaurant that I that I visited, and with a camera or without a camera, that um, didn't of like mm. give you this, this wonderful food that is just so just the quality as mm. just couldn't be bettered anywhere and so this feeling of this city that is ignored and uh, passed over started to give way to a city that I rather sort of started to fall in love with and and I would visit um, certain people that I'd thought were interesting for me to interview and what they were doing and uh, got to hear their stories and listen to them and so I've covered a sort of like a big um, spectrum of uh, what Naples is and what it was looking at through the eyes of two nonagenarians of the second world war which was brutal for the Neapolitans. Um, I even have a a rapper give us the 3,000 years of its history in three minutes to sort of like just put things in perspective. How can we see it? So I was going to the Rome Film Festival, and uh, which I'm very happy about, and then it'll have a theatrical release in Italy. What's um, the title of the film? It's called, uh, oh, it's, it's called Posso Entrare, uh, uh, an ode to Naples. So Posso Entrare means may I enter, may I come in. I would ask permission to people who lived in, in these very sort of modest homes on the, the at street level, and they didn't even have windows. Some of them they had just shutters, mm-hmm. and uh, so the shutters are open in the day to give daylight. But I would tap on their shutters and say, "Posso entrare, signora?" And they'd say, "Masi," this sort of full-throated welcome. And before I knew it, there was an espresso delicious on the table and biscotti, and uh, and we'd become friends in minutes. And I would hear their stories. And the thing about the Neapolitans are they are it's it's actually no accident that Fellini 
even though he didn't really make any movies in Napoli that I can name, but he always cast out of Naples mm. because they are the most telegenic, natural, just they will give their all in front of the camera and their most incredible faces from the, you know, the um, amount of uh, DNA mixtures mm. that, that I alluded to 3,000 years of history mm. in these 12 conquests. So their, their DNA is, as in their words, uh, mm. very contaminated. Mm. And they don't use that word as a pejorative. They mm. use it as absolute yeah. nice. pride in who they are. You told me that you are going to now have a new home in New York. Is there a way that you would bring the kitchen to to New York, or if, you can forage in Central Park? You know, I once did a dinner with oh. Alice Walters in New oh, York, oh, and I thought me. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call Alice and say, Alice, what what are you cooking? We're doing a charity event for Edible Schoolyard. I said, Where are you going to? You know, we've ordered this from here and that from here, and the vegetables from here. What, what who have you ordered your you know? For, vegetables from and she said oh Ruthie I'm going to forage in Central Park for our food and I thought okay and what did she find <laughs> a little slap on the wrist what, what did oh she, she found find? salad leaves and she found some herbs and she found she probably she probably didn't find anything but, you know, <laughs> she made me feel really inferior <laughs> but uh, what will you do for food in New York do you think well we go you know it's of course it's you no, know, you just can't compare it. But mm. we've got far, really good farmers markets, Union Square Union Market. Square, isn't it great? Yeah, yeah, and I go go there on a Sunday and take the little grandchildren mm. uh, along now, and uh, they like to carry their baskets and get some fruits and veggies mm. put in. But I, I, I like supporting the folks who've come in from the you know different areas and traveled three or four it's hours amazing. i mean i grew up in upstate new york and there was corn in the summer and yeah. sort of you know i don't know cabbage and whatever in the winter and now you see these farmers in this market did we go there together i can't remember if we went we were there to union square and they they have like five different kinds of rugula yeah and they have you know all these tomatoes and they're growing them in long island it's, and it's very it's, it's very great. inspiring yeah, i think good. yeah good. yeah no i like to support do you eat them. out much in restaurants do I eat out in restaurants? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a couple of nights a week. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you've described food being part of your family values, your grandmother's cooking, your father's picking the blackberries, your apples under your bed, you know, buying, living in houses, producing wine, producing olive oil, honey, having children and grandchildren to cook for and to take to the market. So food is all that. And in a life of ever-changing times, we have also food which is comfort. So I suppose my last question to you, one that I've asked everyone since uh, Kirsty Young told me, Ruthie, you have one question for everybody. Um, and the question we ask is, if you needed food for comfort, for comfort, not because you're hungry, but because you need comfort, what, is there food in your past or in your future or just that you love? that you would go to when you need comfort from food? Yes. Adora. <laughs> I, I bought you my ultimate comfort food okay. <laughs> in my basket this morning, Ruthie. Yeah, Adora, okay. 
a shredded beef suet to make the most fluffy dumplings. dumplings. <laughs> I'm really looking forward. Will you make some for me? I'm coming. I, I'm right going to make you fluffy okay. dumplings. I'm, I can't wait. I'm going to have a fluffy dumpling. And until then... You can make the, uh, the, the, the okay, stew. We'll make, yeah, we'll come with the stew or the soup. But, uh, we, can make it, we can make a great chicken soup. So thank you, Sean. Thank, Thank you, you Judy. <laughs> this is so such much. a good, good hour, and uh, we will connect. Yeah. Yes, please. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Really excellent. Thank you. Oh, very interesting. Getting so hungry listening to you talking about stuff. Yum. Ruthie's Table 4 is produced by Atomai Studios for iHeartRadio. It's hosted by Ruthie Rogers and it's produced by Willem Malensky. This episode was edited by Julia Johnson and mixed by Nigel Appleton. Our executive producers are Faye Stewart and Zad Rogers. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore and our production coordinator is Bella Cellini. This episode had additional contributions by Sean Wynne-Owen. Thank you to everyone at the River Cafe for your help in making this episode. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.